This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we're definitely going to talk about this decision by Surrey City Council last night. They voted 5 to 4 to make it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. Why would they do this? Well, they said they received about 27 complaints about that in the past year. 27 complaints. Do you think so that makes it okay, in your opinion, do you think, to ban everybody from doing this in a city that definitely has a homelessness issue? They also have an affordable housing issue, and now they're making it illegal to sleep overnight in RVs and campers on city streets. So we want to know for our hot question of the day. Do you support this ban or not? Do you say yes, shut this thing down, or do you go no? Like, where are they going to go? Now, I'll tell you right now, straight up, and if you've been listening, you know I feel like I'm in the no camp, right? Where will they go? I figure, to me, 27 complaints, by the way, 25 of which were resolved, so got dealt with and taken care of, out of a city of more than half a million people, to me, doesn't seem like very much. And don't we want to ask the question, how can we help those 27 people? Uh, apparently, by the way, six of those complaints dealt with one individual. So how about getting that one individual some help? And maybe then you could also put a big dent in this problem as well. But let's hear from you on this topic as well. So use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Vote in our hot question of the day. You'll find it at CKNW or at Simisara980 online. Uh, you can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com. So for a couple of weeks now, we've been talking about the potential for this, I think, pretty significant decision in Surrey. They were talking about making it illegal to sleep in RVs or campers overnight. And last night, council voted five to four to enact that bylaw amendment. We'd been hearing in recent weeks from Councillor Brenda Locke, and she had voted against it. She calls it challenging to people in Surrey who are just trying to get by. And she said she has no idea why this bylaw was even recommended in the first place. You know, I wish I knew. It uh, seems to me to be just a mean-spirited bylaw that uh, will make it really difficult for some people that are in that transition and maybe sleeping in their motorhomes. But I don't know why they chose to do this. It's not an issue in Surrey. It's an issue for maybe some people on council, but it certainly hasn't proved to be an issue. There was 27 complaints in 2019, and of those, 25 were mitigated with the existing bylaw. And Councillor Locke also said that she, the language in the amendment itself, she referred to it as offensive. The corporate report referred to typical unhoused or homeless people. There is nobody that is typical. Everybody's unique, and certainly everybody that is homeless has unique circumstances. And so to use that kind of language about people that are in a challenging time in their life is offensive. And she also said that Safe Surrey Council members made no mention about where these people who are sleeping in their RVs should go. No, they didn't, and they didn't uh, respond either to the... um, They didn't respond to the debate during council last night. You know, we in Surrey are quite underserved when it comes to social infrastructure and especially housing. And so this is challenging. And as recently as Saturday, 200 people were evicted from a a motorhome park or a trailer park in Surrey. 
that's a challenge for people to manage. So uh, I just found it mean-spirited, bad timing, and unnecessary. So why did this happen then? Well, that's what we want to find out more about. Joining us now is Alison Patton, a Surrey City Councillor representing the Safe Surrey Coalition, who voted in favour of this last night. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Simi, for having me. Why did you vote for this? Well, what it sort of has a long history, and um, it was nice of you to play some of those messages from Councillor Locke so I could hear it um, just before I was able to speak. And uh, back in the election campaign, um, one of the uh, things that was discussed was actually solving some of the um, challenges with housing using an RV park. And uh, I remember Councillor Locke saying that that was not a good idea. So it's kind of interesting how... Um, you know, the perspective has changed on that because that still may become an innovative solution to this concern that we have. And I think, um, in my opinion, what what we're trying to do with such an urban centre that Surrey is becoming, we're really trying to get a handle on things and make sure that we're positioned well in the sense that we are very kind-hearted in terms of our staff. From what I've seen, in all my experiences with the over 3,000 staff at, at the City Hall of Surrey, uh, their hearts are very, very kind, and they're always trying to help. So I don't think um, that's a concern for us. And every time a concern comes up through our emails, we really try our best to forward it to the right place and get a response right away. Right. And but- I think um, when we were in Vancouver... Uh, for a recent conference, we took a tour of um, Oppenheimer Park and some other areas. And we saw what happens when things can get out of hand. And so we're not saying there's a problem now, but we're always looking ahead to the future. We're always being as proactive as we can be. And I don't think that this is going to be used um, to cause harm to anyone. But I think it can be used as a tool for management to prevent uh, something from getting out of hand. Okay, if it's not going to cause harm, where are those people supposed to go? You're just saying they can't camp there. How are you going to help them? Well, and that's the neat thing is that, you know, Councillor Locke's in charge of um, working on uh, finally getting a solution to housing that's been in the works some of the reports I was reading was from 2002 and a lot of the former councils were working hard on the issue, had a, had a big heart for the issue. And it's, it's, we're lucky enough to be involved in actually providing um, housing. And so that's something that we and Councillor Law gets to head up. And it's, it's a, it's a real um, honor for us to be part of that. And right. so we we're working on that. And then there's also the other innovative ideas that um that a number of us have and we're working with Councillor Locke for her to um, you know engage with some of those ideas so it's really a good time for the, for addressing this issue and I just think it's prudent of us to you know get ahead of any potential challenges for all the citizens of Surrey. Right but you had 27 complaints in one year in a city of 518,000 people do you think having 27 complaints of which 25 were resolved and dealt with. Does that justify saying that nobody can do this anymore? Uh, well, I'm not sure we, we want to look at it that way. I think, as I mentioned, it's looking ahead to the future. We're always looking ahead, and we want to not allow something to get out of hand. Not that it is, it's, and, it, and it may never be needed. 
But this way, then why do this? Like this needed. seems like a colossal waste of time. Then, if it's not needed right now, why do this? Surrey has a lot of other pressing issues. There's lots of issues that we handle, and that's what's nice about our council is because we're very diverse in our interests and in what we hear from the public. Because we each are able to hear from different groups, we're able to address a number of concerns of the citizens. And one of the things um, for myself, um, I'm working on collaborating with White Rock on finding a location for our um, choice uh, for housing in South Surrey White Rock area. And um, because the South Surrey White Rock is one group, we're, we're going to work with White Rock Council to find the best location for the housing that we plan there. Right. And this bylaw then, if this is, is this is trying to deal with a future problem, was there any mention of that though, Councillor Patton, about how do we help people if they find themselves in this situation? Like does Surrey not have a homelessness problem right now? Well, and that's what's, that's what we have stood up and, and stood for, which is not necessarily what every a city has done, and, and again, we're a leader in this area, is we're saying we are going to work on housing the homeless, and we are going to find solutions, and we are working on it. And but you're banning them before you can find a solution. Like you, You're banning them before the solution. Well, the wonderful thing is Councillor Locke is heading it up, and we're supporting her as best we can to ensure that happens. And all this does is balance out if there becomes an issue. So there was a time when, uh, as we saw in Vancouver, things are now beyond the ability to manage. And so that is a problem. And it's very, very distressing. What I saw when I took a tour um, of in my car of the area. But we're not talking about Vancouver right now. We're talking about Surrey. Who brought this matter to council? The thing is, homeless people don't stay in one area necessarily and or concerns that cities have don't don't aren't restricted to one area so um we we are going to be the largest center in the province so we have to look ahead and and really take heart to all the citizens of surrey and i don't think we would ever put someone in a difficult position our city staff work very hard with each individual to find a solution to the challenges they face. But so, so I feel that that we are really looking at all the possible concerns and trying to address those and being proactive, looking to the future. Councillor Patton, though, who brought this to council? Like, did somebody raise this as a concern, and who was that? When we get corporate reports, we usually have staff bring them forward to us. And I would, from my understanding, that is where it came from, is from the corporate report related to the bylaws, because we do often review our bylaws. And when we see potential concerns popping up, uh, we look to see what can we do to get ahead of the concern. And I think that we, we always look at it from a positive perspective. I'm Not curious. That's going to hurt others. I'm curious, though, Councillor Patton. Though in the couple of weeks, this has kind of been in the news and discussed among the community. Have you heard from a lot of people? Have they contacted you? And what are they saying about this? I've had lots of different people contact me, and there's a number of different concerns that are being brought forward. And so we're trying to balance all those concerns and address the issue of where people can live in Surrey. So that I think is a very 
open-eyed approach to it. And what I love on our councils, we have differing viewpoints. In other words, we have a wealth of experience that people bring to the table with, and all of our councillors are good-hearted in the sense that we want to help people. Right, so, so then I, let me I ask really you this. Feel- if that happens today then, so this bylaw has now been passed, and let's say you come across some people who are sleeping overnight in their RVs, they're not supposed to now because you can't in Surrey, what does the city of Surrey do to help those people? Well, I, well, I think that we, you could definitely ask Councillor Locke that because she's heading up that department. And what department? You know, there's a whole plan. What, what department are you talking the about? Housing, this, the housing, the 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 area of social housing. She's she. We're backing her fully on In her initiatives way? around that. Like we what votes? Her. What bylaws? Like what what? projects well for example um when we're starting to build the green timber site and there's another site that we're building um we're renovating just just north of city hall and there's another site in guilford and then we're working i'm working with white rock i'm going to be working with white rock on finding one so sorry so we each have a different project that we're contributing to and we're helping as best we can to ensure that we find solutions to this issue what would you say to somebody who is now going to be left without somewhere to go, though, if they have been out of desperation or need just not being able to find a place to live, they find themselves in their RV and now it's illegal in Surrey. What do you say to people like that, Councillor Patton? Well, I think that um, the way you describe it, it's not quite correct in the sense that yes. it's more it's more a tool if if there is a person who who is in their RV parked, let's say in a cul-de-sac, and some of the residents there begin to have an issue with it, and they call the city, that's more what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with, um, you know, people going around looking for this problem. We're, we're dealing more with... But that's what you already had, though. Like, that already existed. It was already complaint-driven. That's right, but this just gives a little bit more strength to allow, to prevent it from getting out of hand. Because there have been cases, as we see in Vancouver, where things get out of hand, and then you can't get a handle on it once it's out of hand. And it's heartbreaking to see it. It's extremely heartbreaking. And I can't really feel good about having that happen. Because what I saw and what I've seen in other times does break my heart and and I don't think we're getting a grip on that and I don't know how people sleep at night when there is no grip on that so I just think that we have to be proactive meaning we look ahead as well as respond to the humans we meet and find solutions that work for everybody and I think that's all we could ever ask of ourselves I think that's admirable for people to even try to do that so Councillor so I just appreciate you bringing this topic up because it's a really tough topic and it touches a lot of us because really most of us are just three decisions away from homelessness. So it can touch any one of us. Nobody, yes. nobody is resilient that- enough to, under enough bad luck, to face homelessness. And if you've never gone to that place in your mind, you wouldn't even know how that feels. And, and Councillor Pat, that was actually the point of the whole discussion, but I'm going to say right. thank you there and thank you very much for joining us today.
Thank you very much, Simi. That is Allison. Another time. That's Allison Patton, Surrey City Councillor representing the Safe Surrey Coalition. She was among the councillors who voted in favour of this bylaw amendment last night that will ban uh, people from overnight camping in RVs on Surrey City streets. Right now, though, let's talk a little federal politics, shall we? And yesterday, Elizabeth May announced that she is stepping down as leader of the Green Party of Canada. She has been in that job for 13 years. But she said she promised her daughter three years ago that the 2019 election would be her last as party leader. So right away, as she stepped down from those duties, they appointed Deputy Leader Joanne Roberts as her successor until the party holds a leadership convention, which would be coming up next October, so October of 2020. So we wanted to know, what does this mean now for the Green Party? Where does it head uh, in the future? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Joanne Roberts, Interim Leader of the Green Party of Canada. And thank you very much for being here. It's great to be with you, Simi. Thanks for the call. Were you surprised to hear about Elizabeth May's decision? I wasn't surprised that she would step down. The timing caught me a little off guard uh, because I thought it, that Elizabeth might wait a little longer. I knew that she did. She had promised Kate she was not going to take the party into another election. I knew she wanted to do this on her terms and on uh, sort of her timeline. But, you know, Elizabeth is so astute politically. I mean, she knows we're sitting in a minority parliament. She wants the party to have as much time as possible to seek a new leader, get a new leader in place before we go back to the polls. So I guess I'm not surprised. Uh, Just from a personal point of view, I thought maybe had a little more time to get ready for this. Right. So, yeah, given the timing of this uh, leadership convention almost a year from now, is that too long given what's going on in, in politics? I don't think so. I think uh, parties have come to realize that leadership conventions do two things. Uh, They draw attention to the party. That's a good thing. They allow for ideas to be discussed internally and amongst members and new members. They attract new members. Um, And I think especially when a party like ours that has had such an amazing leader and had her for 13 years, there is a time for us to really have that discussion about what does the next phase look like. So you need some time to do that. I mean, just from a logistical point of view. So the uh, race will start in earnest probably early in the new year and will wrap up on October 4th. So really, when you look at it, it, it's not that long. I mean, you look south of the border. What are they taking? Two years to find a nomination, uh, a nominee for the Democratic Party. So I think we're doing okay. But when you look back then at this election campaign, and there were such high hopes heading into this that the Greens could have a, a very big and meaningful breakthrough. Is the party going through any kind of an examination of what worked and what didn't work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all parties would be crazy not to do that, right? To sit down and say, okay, what worked and what didn't work. I mean, the one thing, we just came out of our federal council meeting, and there was a lot of excitement that this was our most successful election ever. That may not have been the national narrative, but when you look at three MPs elected, um, the first ever Green MP outside BC, more than a million votes nationwide, 49 campaigns over 10%. For us, these are all firsts. These are all breakthroughs. Um, You know, I ran on the East Coast this time. Last election, I ran on the West Coast. And I think how you interpreted this campaign probably was seen differently depending on what coast you were on. What do you mean? Well, on the West Coast, I think high expectations, a couple of ridings we were pretty sure we were going to win and then lost by very close races. So there was disappointment there. On the East Coast, uh, 
there hadn't been that breakthrough success, and so everyone was pushing hard. And to get an MP on the East Coast, that was seen as a huge breakthrough. To have 20 out of 25 maritime ridings get over 10%, first time ever. So on the East Coast, it was seen successfully. On the West Coast, disappointments. But when you put those two together, we were able to see it as a positive. Right. But when you talk about the overall number of votes, the Green Party still kind of stays in and around that between 5 and 10% for the last couple of elections. What do you think the party needs to do to, to gain more? Well, and I think that's the discussion we're going to have, right? Like, how do you break through that sort of 10% threshold, uh, which we looked like at the early part of this election campaign, we were over that. Um, So we would like to know how do we sustain that? I think that lasted till about two weeks before the end of the campaign. So what, what happened in those two weeks? What could we do differently? Those are all questions we're going to ask. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind that under first past the post, we are the only Green Party in the world to have reached this level of success under first past the post. So having said that, that means we have to work within this system right now unless we are facing electoral reform down the road. So, yeah, we will be looking at those things um, and maybe looking at where uh, provincial parties have succeeded. Um, but we are seeing a change. We, we are seeing traditional voting patterns starting to break down. Now, how quickly? That's a good question. Right. So what are the Green Party priorities then heading into this minority parliament? Well, you know, the good news for me and for the party is that Elizabeth will stay on as parliamentary leader. So she will continue to help both of our new MPs sort of uh, find their way, realize how you can make probably punch above your weight, if I can use that analogy. Mm -hmm. They will be looking to work with other parties. I mean, Elizabeth is quite concerned that Canada is going to go to the climate summit in Madrid now with the same targets we had at the last summit that we still haven't met. So she's going to be really working with the MPs to to push that hard. I mean, I heard in your news that you covered the uh, story from the 11,000 climate researchers. I mean, those things are starting to become everyday occurrences now. And, and Elizabeth is going to be pushing hard. But on our working together with the other parties. She's really hopeful that since uh, the NDP, the Liberals, and the Greens were all pushing for pharmacare, that a national pharmacare program will be a top priority. Do you think as well, like when it comes to vetting candidates, will the Green Party be working on that? Because it seems like every election, there's always a problem with something that pops up. Right. And I mean, obviously, we had probably the same number as the Liberals that had to be pulled this year. And considering the size of their party and the depth of their ability, uh, I'm not going to sort of apologize for that. But yes, we are getting a lot more attention. And that means that the vetting has to go deeper and um, be, you know, a bit more stringent. I think that we're getting that. Um, The size of our party has has meant that we haven't had to always take it to that level. But, yes, that's been identified, and I think every party. I mean, the New Democrats had to pull candidates, the Liberals had to pull candidates, the Conservatives had to pull candidates. So everybody is putting much more sort of attention and resources into that. All right. Well, Joanne, thank you very much for your time. It was great to talk to you. That is Joanne Roberts, interim leader of the Green Party of Canada, laying out what the party has to do over the next year before picking a new leader. There is actually more news out of Surrey today, not just uh, the uh, ban that they had last night on people camping overnight in their RVs and campers. There's more on this, and it's an update when it comes to their transition to the Surrey Police Force or the Surrey Police Department. So the chair of the Joint Policing Transition Committee is Wally Opal, and he says that they've had now their second meeting in moving this whole thing along, and they said it was productive. 
as they work to continue to provide information to the province on setting up Surrey's own police department. Next up, next step, he says, will be the appointment of a police board. Now, to talk more about this and get an update on what's going on, let's check in with Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Yes, this is only the second meeting of the transitional committee. Um, There were some difficulties over the past few weeks of them getting a meeting together, and we had heard from the mayor, we had heard from Wally Opal, so now they finally got their act together, and they finally met again for meeting number two, and it happened on Friday, Simi. And as you say, Mr. uh, Mr. Opal describing it as productive, but he also told me it was very uneventful, but they did cover uh, four or five very key important topics he told me, including recruitment, file continuity, bargaining and pensions, etc. And here's more of what he had to tell me. We talked about things that are very important to the establishment of a new police service. And uh, before the city of Surrey gets their own police force, uh, there has to be in place a process collective bargaining and pensions for prospective members, uh, whether they're members of the RCMP who will switch over to the new force, members of the Vancouver Police Force who may switch over, or new members of the new nascent police force. And we also have to have a recruitment plan, a training plan for the new recruits, the investigative file continuity. That's really important. That is that uh, the ongoing investigations... Uh, have to have some kind of continuity to them because it's important to remember that there can't be any compromising of of, uh, safety standards so that if a major investigation is going on during the transition period, who is responsible for that? So those are things that we talked about. Uh, As well, one of the more important things is the information management technology plan. And how do you uh, have a technology plan with uh, IT? So that's important. And uh, so we, in the next sort of concrete step that needs to be taken, and this would be the responsibility of the provincial government providing that we give them the necessary information that's needed, and that is the, the um, uh, establishment of a police board. Uh, as you know, a police board is a governing body of uh, any police department. So that would be a major step. So those are some of the things that we've talked about. And it was a very productive meeting, and I'm I'm uh, very pleased that the Surrey uh, people came there and they had uh, very, very uh, positive steps and good information to give to us so we can move forward. Wally, uh, when does it come time to hire a new chief? When does that take place? And was there discussion about that at all? I can't give you any any definite time, um, but before that's done, there has to be a police board, and that uh, that won't be done until we give enough information to the uh, director of police services, who will then give that information to the uh, solicitor general, Mr. Farnworth, and uh, that's a provincial matter, and uh, so we're moving towards that, and uh, the police board would be responsible for advertising for and selecting a police chief. In terms of recruitment, uh, is there anything definitive there uh, or was there just more discussion around recruitment and when will that recruitment begin? Well, the recruitment can't take place unless there's a police chief and 
the actual recruitment. But having said that, you can still have recruitment policies, and that's what we're working on. We we expect that there will be members of the RCMP uh, who will transfer to the new police service. Uh, we expect there will be members of the Vancouver Police Department who will uh, transfer over. Uh, those are expectations, but again, it's important to remember that that uh, there's no concrete evidence on that yet, but there are people who are interested. So we have to move forward with uh, all of those factors in mind. And so Wally Opal is speaking with our Janet Brown. So Janet, it sounds like they're making progress because they had a couple of meetings that were cancelled, I seem to remember. There were apparently two meetings that were cancelled, according to Wally Opal. It's because the Surrey representatives uh, weren't able to be there. I don't know whether there was some sort of misunderstanding or, or what happened behind the scenes. We really never did find out, but we do know those meetings never happened. Mr. Wally Opal wasn't very happy about it at the time, but now, as I say, they finally got their act together and were meeting. And um, it's interesting to note, too, that this transition committee, Simi, is just providing advice and information. It is not direction to the Solicitor General. They're just providing information so that in the end, uh, Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, right. will be able to make the decision whether, you know, Surrey's going to transition from the RCMP to a municipal force. This is not a done deal. Uh, Mr. Opal emphasized that. This is not a done deal. This is sort of just drilling down and trying to provide the facts and information to the province. Right, but it sounds like they are making progress, right? Right. Like I don't I didn't hear anything from Wally Opal there that would make him have any kind of red flags about this. Absolutely not. He's very confident that this is going to get done eventually. Uh, They're going to get there, he said, but it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of time, et cetera, et cetera. But as we heard from the mayor um, in the last hmm, couple of weeks now, uh, he's still confident that this transition will be done and completed by the year 2021. We even heard from him last week, I think it was, that he thinks there are going to be some officers from the Surrey PD on the road by the middle of next year. I don't know, you know, whether that's actually going to happen, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see because he says this is going to be a gradual transition, right. the new Surrey PD officers into the RCM, from the RCMP. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, it's really important to note too, Simi, we still don't know. We still don't have the answer what this is going to cost Surrey taxpayers yeah. at the end of the day. You know, people are still throwing percentages around, but in terms of a real dollar figure, we still don't have that. Have they also also at all mentioned like how many people have applied for this job how many people are expressing interest in this no and you know it's just uh, information from the mayor saying uh, he's hearing from all sorts of people that they want to transfer over from surrey uh, police De- uh, pardon me vancouver police department delta etc but in terms of actual numbers we don't know and the other problem too simi we've been hearing and we heard it from mr uh, opal as well that there's just not enough space right now at the Justice Institute in New Westminster yeah. where they where they train civic police officers. All the seats, all the classes are full. So is there going to be some expansion of the JI in New Westminster? Is there going to be another facility created south of the Fraser? Because we have the Abbotsford Police, we have Delta Police too. Um, So, you know, a, a lot of things still have to be worked out here, that's for sure. All right, Janet, thank you very much for that. 
My pleasure, Simi. Thank you. That is Janet Brown, our Global News Senior Reporter, reporting there on the transition to a Surrey police force. It seems to be moving along now. There were a few hiccups, uh, you know, when we last heard about it, some meetings that hadn't gone as planned or as scheduled. But now it sounds like, from Moliopol anyway, that the transition is, is, is moving along and the next step is the appointment of a police board. Maybe then we'll get some numbers on the number of applications they're getting and how this is all going to work. 2020 shaping up to be a very big year in that department for Surrey. You know, from the first moment that it opened, it's been an amazing destination. It has certainly been on my bucket list. And as they say, it sits on an island, off an island, at one of the corners of the earth. And today we're going to be talking about that place. It is the Fogo Island Inn. And while why we are talking about it is because of the Eat Vancouver Festival. Now, it's back for its 18th year. It's coming up, actually, started yesterday, November 4th to the 9th. And they have even more award-winning chefs, more collaboration dinners, events, classes all sorts of great stuff for you to sink your teeth into. Just check out their website for more information. Now, they've also got 15 chefs who are going to be there to prepare signature dishes that will embody their cuisine. And one of the people that they have brought in to do that, and we're so lucky to have them in studio with us now, is Jonathan Gushu with the Fogo Island Inn. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. That's a long way to come for this, so we appreciate that. It was. It was a bit of a trek. It was a bit of a trek. It is. I don't think people understand how far it is to get to the corners of Newfoundland and Labrador, isn't it? How long is that flight? Yeah. Now, it's altogether, I think I looked at, it was about 18 hours travel, 11 hours flying. That's amazing. I mean, you can go to Europe for that. Well, that's, I, I, at the end of it, I was sort of exhausted sitting in the airport going, my, how am I still in the same country, you know? I feel that so. way often as well, <laughs> traveling to Newfoundland. Uh, so what are you going to be doing for Eat Vancouver? What are you going to be preparing? Uh, for Eat Vancouver, we're doing a lettuce fondue. So it's, it's uh, we say uh, lettuce in the way, like we use, we use a lot of foraged herbs on Fogo. Um, so what we do from there, so any wild leaves, uh, not really any scattered, but any the sea vegetables we can find, uh, we would c- essentially make a sauce or a soup out of that, uh, and then we thicken it with scallops. And then it's it's naturally thickened with scallops. You put them in raw, and when the, the soup or sauce is hot, it thickens it. And when it sets, it becomes almost... Um, Almost like a bit of a, almost like a jelly. And then we serve that with uh, some Fogoan and snow crab. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple. <laughs> pretty simple, except for the foraging and the making and the doing all that. Just oh, that part's to... fun. Is that we part like, fun? We enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Fogo Island. How isolated is it? I'm sure people, when they th- when they see the pictures of Fogo, the Fogo Island Inn, it's so mm-hmm. distinctive, right? It's the hotel on pillars, and it feels like it's in the middle of nowhere. I, I get. I don't know if I'm biased or something. I just don't. I always find when people say isolated, I don't know what. I don't get it. Like, I'm. For, I mean, I'm from St. John's. Uh, oh, originally. you're kidding! I'm so kidding. So I'm. Yes. I'm. So I don't really find it that isolating. I find it fascinating more so. Uh, there's, it's. It's just so different than anything else I've ever. I've ever seen. I mean, when I first went there, it was almost as shocking as. I mean, I don't know how to put it, but I remember my first reaction. My, you know, I was thinking, my God, this is like the moon. And, and, and just, See, you felt it too, it, then. But not isolated. I don't. I, I always get nervous when people say isolated because I think they're trapped. I mean, you know, we. It's very easy to get on and off the island. Uh, so, 
I think it's air access. There's one thing we have issues with, but I mean, getting off the island as as a, a whatever a local or a resident is it's uh, it's super easy. And, and but there's lots to do. I mean, the islands it's bigger than Manhattan Island, so it, there's there's a bit of stuff to do. Though there's a lot to do there for sure. But you know, when the idea of building this um, hotel where it is to build this in, it has attracted people from all over the world. Lots of celebrities as well. What's that like? <laughs> Um, I think what's great, what's great about the inner or Newfoundlanders in general or Newfoundland is that it just brings everyone down to the same level. I think everyone's pretty casual. You come in and, you know, they say, hey, how are you? And that's really about it. Um, I don't think the pretension has gone pretty quickly. Um, I mean, our goal is just to give people a great experience, uh, let them have a better understanding of Fogo Island. Um, and the people and the place, and uh, really just let them let them relax, decompress a bit. And when you cook for them, because that's what you're in charge of there, how challenging is that for you then? Because I know you like to use a lot of local ingredients, as you mentioned, but those can also be hard to find. Not at all, actually. The I mean, you think it's a self-sustaining island for 500 years. So, I mean, I thought the same thing. And I really, what I, my, my intention was going there, I really want to challenge myself as a chef. And quite honestly, I've got more stuff than I can use. Really? More product than I can use. Yeah, I mean, we don't... I mean, you can imagine there's not a lot of... I mean, I don't know if you've seen pictures of Fogo Island, but I guess you oh, have. Yes. So it's not exactly conducive to cattle. But beyond <laughs> that, it's everything. No. I mean, there's there's pigs and and uh, lamb and sheep. and But beyond that, I mean, there's chickens, of course. But really beyond that, I mean, there's so much fish. I mean, it's almost... Those things are like a side note. The seashore lamb, as amazing as it is, is still sort of just one of those things we have where, where the star of the show is the cod, the crab... Um, I mean, even uh, right now, sea cucumbers you see are just uh, amazing, mackerel, herring, and all these things. It's funny. It's it's actually great to be able for guests to serve them. And they say, where is this herring from? And you just point, you know, right there. Right there. And and you can actually see sometimes out in the evening when people are starting to come dine that they're, that's when they do a lot of squid jigging and uh, lobster trapping. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool, and especially when they see, you know, they can see people pulling lobsters out of the ocean. Just right in front of them, mm-hmm. like from the window of their room, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Everything, every single, what was smart about the inn, too, is every, all 29 rooms point to, you know, the uh, Notre Dame Bay. So you can provide the protein, no problem. What oh, vegetables about, are easy. Yeah, are they? What do you really? use? Um, we do, I mean, most of everyone had their own gardens, so because, because they had to sustain themselves. Yeah. So um, that did go by the wayside for a while. But when, uh, you know, we encouraged uh, them to uh, bring it back, and there were still a half dozen growers still on the island. Uh, we've probably got a good dozen now, and there's one, There's we even have one, a uh, vertical grower now that's uh, doing all kinds of hydroponic greens for us. Uh, but not, I mean, again, cha- it's not challenging at all, enough to the point that we're getting enough product that we started another, a totally uh, separate vegan lunch initiative. Uh, really? that, that's just foc- uh, focusing on the vegetables of the island. And also, too, hopefully we're, we're looking at getting into school programs as well that we can... Um, you know, uh, bring back the the home economics uh, concept where that's gone by the wayside a bit and people can be making their, hopefully the students can be making their own lunches. That is such a good point, though, that the idea that the home economics have gone by the wayside. Because I know that in speaking with, like, my mother-in-law has passed away now and, and other relatives, like, Newfoundland was always so self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. And that, that you're right, that has changed a lot in recent years. Everybody did have a garden before. Oh, everyone had a garden. It was very, we, we growing up, we used to, I mean... 
I, I grew up in St. John's, but I, I obviously knew of it. My, my grandparents were in uh, Conception Bay, but they, you did have that feeling. I mean, there was, there was the, the, the island would change when you would, you know, when it was berry season, moose season, time to go fishing. I mean, which at the time, sadly, was any time. Yeah. Know, that's why we got in the trouble we got into. But, <laughs> so you know, I think it's, uh, it, it's I mean, there's always been uh, this, the, I think every Newfoundlander's got a forager in them. Um, it was just a thing. You didn't. Uh, you never questioned going blueberry picking. On the East Coast, we would go blueberry picking. In Fogo area, you would see in central or central Newfoundland, you'd see a lot of partridge berries, baked apples, crowberries, things like that. So how do you experiment then? When you're creating new dishes, how often do you create new dishes and how do you do that? What's your process like? We go through, I mean, flavor profiles. It is, that is proving complicated. Complicated enough that we're building a lab to sort of our research laboratory, I suppose, or our, uh, a place we can do R&D, do properly. Timothy Charles, who's been there from the very beginning as the executive sous chef, he's, uh, he's done a lot of, of um, research into the island's products, preservation, um, and, that, and just flavor. Pro- the flavor profiles, that's one thing. Uh, you're, you're right. They're, they can be they're, – they're, they're different. So it's, it's just wrapping our head around them. And it's great because you get certainly things like rose roots, uh, things like that, where, but they finish like marigolds. And it's sort of strange, uh, but, of, you know, a, a good strange if there's such a thing. <laughs> there is such a thing. So a, a food lab, is that like, like what um, El Bulli used to do, right, where you had a I lab mean, to work at? Yeah, conceptually. I mean, I think is, it's more from a chef's point of view is that when you really are experimenting, um, and trying, trying to, which is really ultimately trying to give the best experience to your guest. But that doesn't mean you want to be using your guest as guinea pigs. Uh, and there's a difference. So we would just like, I think we can do a better job uh, for planning our seasons if we, um, if we do some forward research. And I think it would also, too, allow us to give that, that particular ingredient the respect it deserves and, and take it as far as we can. Is there an ingredient that you can think of that you still haven't found a place for? Like something you said, I want to use this, but I haven't found the right place to use this yet. Something that's been particularly challenging to you? I think uh, challenging perception, probably like I mentioned, the sea cucumber. I, mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's amazing. I think we just have to get used to it and see how it's best, best used. Somewhere between, um, we'd like to keep it, it's, it's a bit more aggressive than squid, but is, is very similar. Um, I think we just haven't found the... I'm not sure if the thing is if we haven't found the right place or our our guests aren't sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> so will you keep presenting it oh, to yeah. the guests until they yeah. are sure? I think just in the most... in in sort of the friendliest manner. And I mean by that, maybe it's... Is it ceviche? Is it grilled? What is what is the most approachable? I think I'm thinking grilled these days that uh, is the most approachable way to be... Uh, presenting it. How long has Fogo Island Inn been open now? Ten years more? No, no. About it's going to uh, next year will be its eighth, eighth year. Eighteenth, eighth year. Okay, so almost ten years. Then have you? Do you think food has changed during that time? Has cuisine changed during that time? Where now what you're doing there is it seems like everybody is doing that. I think so. I mean, I think we would owe that to probably Noma or and El Bulli, especially Noma. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's good for us. It works for us. I mean, everything in Newfoundland, and I think that's a lot. There's a couple of things, but I think obviously the recent uh, fascination with Scandinavia has been great for Newfoundland. They're Why? Because well, we're where we are a subarctic climate. We're the most southernmost subarctic climate in the world, so we do have our weather. We are not very cold. In fact, our, I think we have the third mildest winter in Canada. But because we are subarctic due to currents, the Labrador Current, we do get products much like northern Sweden. I was in northern Sweden and I couldn't believe it, it was really like 
I looking at the ground, I thought I was home. Looking at the ground because you're looking at your product. Yeah, it's all the same. It's I, actually it's it's it smells the same. Even getting off in Copenhagen the first time I ever went, I I'd been in Toronto for years, and then prior I was living here, and they, I couldn't. The smell was it was it was actually shocking that I got a bit of a jolt when I got off the plane because it's I thought I was in St. John's. Well, listen, it's nice to have you back on the West Coast. Uh, glad to see you're going to be here for Eat Vancouver. Anything uh, that we can look forward to? I think, I mean, it's going to be a great, a great week. Um, a, lot of, a lot of awesome chefs. I look really forward to seeing a lot of these guys again. Um, but I think, yeah, you've got to come out and try everything because it's a, it's a great experience. We just did the one in Toronto. It was a huge success. Do you like to like look at what the other chefs are making and go, hmm, all right, interesting. I'm going to make a little note about that. No, for sure. It's it's just like it's just like dining out. There's lots to learn. There's more as long as you keep an open mind, you're going to keep moving forward. Oh, sounds good, Jonathan. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. That is Jonathan Gushu from the Fogo Island Inn here for the Eat Vancouver Festival. Kicked off yesterday, runs through to the ninth. This just gives a little bit more strength to allow, to prevent it from getting out of hand. Because there have been cases, as we see in Vancouver, where things get out of hand. And then you can't get a handle on it once it's out of hand. And it's heartbreaking to see it. That is Surrey Councillor Alison Patton. She was on with us a couple of hours ago explaining her vote last night where Surrey Council voted 5-4 to four to pass a bylaw amendment that prevents people and makes it illegal to sleep in RVs or campers overnight in the city. There's been so much discussion about this. Mainly the question is, like, why? Where did this come from? We learned from city staff that there were 27 complaints in the last year, 25 of which were resolved satisfactorily. So we wanted to learn more about, well, why vote for this? What other things is Surrey putting in place to help people then who might need that? Because that's a symptom, right, of a bigger problem. What are they doing to deal with the bigger problem? So let's talk more about this now with the help of Doug Alford, who is a Surrey City Councillor, also representing the Safe Surrey Coalition and voted in favour of this bylaw amendment last night. Councillor Alford, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on today. Now, why did you vote for this? Well, um, I was—I've always been strongly in favor of tightening the bylaws on this uh, issue. Uh, when it first went back, I actually voted against it going back. I thought we should just carry on board with this. Um, I—I uh, I think we need the tools in the toolbox for our bylaw office to manage, uh, manage our problematic circumstances, and that's basically what it's for. Um, we don't—I don't expect them to go out. And uh, and uh, I, I expect empathy and working with the people before we have to go to uh, to our last drastic measures. Right, but wasn't that already happening? If if city staff say they only got twenty seven complaints in the last year out of a city of half a million people, and twenty five of those complaints were resolved, where is the bigger problem? Well, this is actually just brings us up to Vancouver standards. And as you can see in Vancouver, they're not doing a very good job of, of, uh, of managing the problem themselves. Yeah, that's my opinion. So we need to be able to have the tools in the toolbox because we need to not prevent clustering in the community. That's one of the issues that concerns me is we, we don't need to have uh, clusters, community clusters of our, our vehicles in, the, in, in Surrey. Right, but is that happening? Well, it could potentially happen. So who brought this forward then? Like, did somebody see this? Like, where did this come from? If, if this problem isn't happening, it's a future problem, a potential problem. Who brought this forward? 
I'm not quite sure it came up through staff through a corporate report. Right. So what is being put in place, though, Councillor Alford, to help people? Because I don't think people sleep in their RVs willingly because they want to. In terms of uh, you're talking about what options for these people? Yeah, like if you're telling people you can't sleep in your RV and potentially they are homeless, what does does the city do then at that point? Do you just tell them to move on or how do you help them? Well, tell them to move on, I guess. Um, You don't don't care where they would go? uh, I don't want them polluting our environment. And and that's one of the main issues that I have. These are Surrey residents and you don't want them polluting your environment if they don't have a home? I don't want them... Now, in Vancouver, for example, we've experienced, when I had this file, I was environmental officer for the city of Vancouver, and I had this file, and what I experienced was a high volume of uh, pollution at these clusters, solid waste and liquid waste issues, and that's a real concern of mine. Right, but I'm talking about the people. Like, pollution is one thing, waste is one thing, but these are potentially people who need help, and don't you care about those people? Of course we care about these people and and what we've seen is the bylaw people and they have done this uh, very um, effectively is work with them to find solutions for for accommodation. Okay so if they've done it very effectively why do you need this bylaw? Because uh, we uh, like I said we want to stop uh, these clusters from potentially gathering and and this is something that we the bylaw people need to have these tools in place to be able to do their job effectively. All right, so then, Councillor Alfred, let me ask you this. So let's say you get a complaint about an RV, somebody sleeping in it, and the bylaw officer goes there. What steps do you hope that bylaw officer then takes to deal with this person? Well, it's going to be done on a complaint basis, from what I understand. So somebody in the community or the neighbourhood house will have be complaining about this, a resident of Surrey, for mm-hmm. one reason or another. And the bylaw officer, the expectation is to investigate, follow up, and and, uh, deal with it on a case-by-case basis. Right. So if they need help, if they need a home, what do you do then in Surrey? Well, we, you know, they would reach out to uh, their mental health workers, uh, refer them to other people, like other, like the police do when we when we encounter people. It's just a matter of uh, you uh, providing them the opportunity to access services that are available to them. Now, Councillor Alfred, are you at all concerned with how this portrays Surrey? Because, you know, thousands of people probably want ride hailing in your community and thousands of people might like to see a legal cannabis store. That's not going to happen. But 27 complaints about something and you guys are dealing with it. Well, as I said, uh, I'm, I'm not concerned about uh, our reputation in, in, in regards to this. Uh, it's not a, a critical problem right now. And so I don't expect it to be a huge problem down the road. How about creating a place then where people can park their RVs? What about more RV parks or trailer parks to help people deal with, as you say, the pollution? Well, this is a good idea. Um, um, It's something that we should be investigating. We've talked about this in the past, but we met with, uh, um, I've met with different uh, uh, RV uh, tenants and these are some of the suggestions they brought up you know that we need better facilities it's probably something that we should be looking into as a city so will you be bringing that forward well we're going to have maybe have staff investigate have a look and see at the options all right well Councillor elford thank you for your time on this today thank you that's Doug Elford, Surrey City Councillor, one of the other representatives of the Safe Surrey Coalition. 
the five members of the Safe Surrey Coalition voted in favor of this bylaw amendment last night that will ban uh, people sleeping in RVs or campers overnight in Surrey. All because, as we've now spoken to two councillors, of a potential problem down the line that hasn't actually happened yet. Well, tell them to move on, I guess. Um, you don't, we don't care want where they them, would go? Uh, uh, I don't want them polluting our environment, and and that's one of the main issues whoa, that whoa, I whoa, have. Whoa. These are Surrey residents, and you don't want them polluting your environment if they don't have a home? I don't want them. Now, in Vancouver, for example, we've experienced, when I had this file, I was environmental officer for the city of Vancouver, and I had this file, and what I experienced was a high volume of uh, pollution at these clusters solid waste and liquid waste issues. And that's a real concern of mine. Right. Except let me be clear, those clusters don't exist in Surrey. Okay. He's talking about a hypothetical, theoretical, maybe if at some point in the future kind of problem that they voted to deal with last night at Surrey Council. That is Doug Elford, Surrey City Councillor. A lot of this has to do, for me anyway, the issues of affordability and homelessness. We have a homelessness issue all over Metro Vancouver. And even in Surrey, where it's becoming increasingly difficult to find a place where the rental vacancy rate is close to zero, uh, a lot of people, if they're if they're living, if they're sleeping overnight in an RV, it's not by choice. It's probably because they don't really have anywhere else to go. So what is being done to help those people with this new ban that they have got on having people sleep overnight in their RV? So we wanted to talk more about that problem. How big of a problem is this? Joining us now is Mike Musgrove who's the executive director of the Surrey Urban Mission in Wally. He's actually out shopping for furniture right now for a shelter, but he did find a quiet spot to talk to us. And Mike, we appreciate that. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. I'm still working on that quiet spot, but hopefully this works. Let uh, me know. Okay. Well, we definitely <laughs> want to get your take on this. Like Surrey Council clearly, well, the five members who voted for this clearly think this is a potentially huge problem in the making. What do you think? Um. Well, I, I don't know what what is causing them to think that at this point. Uh, it's, it's I think the statistics were 27 complaints last year, um, and uh, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think that <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea what would make them think that this is going to be a potential issue. Uh, I I um, have a lot to say about the actual issues at at the moment. <laughs> You know, let alone looking at things that are potential issues. Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, what are what is the homelessness situation like, Mike, in Surrey? How big of a problem is this? Um, <laughs> it's it's huge. Uh, there, there's there's a housing crisis. There's no space available. That people can't afford. Um, the, the the few places that are available are not affordable for the folks uh, that are currently uh, non-housed in Surrey. And and we like just in the area I'm in, we have um, I think it's 200 in shelters, um, and that's just in a four four block area in the Wally area. Um, and then plus we have you know we have uh, the modular homes which is set up, but but uh, you know that these things were set up to be transitional, uh, but there's nowhere to transition people to. Um, so we have a we have a crisis. It it is definitely a crisis. I'm not saying it's. I, I know this is this is uh, probably provincial wide. Uh, maybe it's um, international, but uh, certainly I know Surrey, 
and know that it's a problem in Surrey. So what is, Mike, being done about that? Like from this, in your work and your association mm-hmm. and dealing with Surrey City Council and the city of Surrey, are they helpful? Like what are they doing to help mitigate this? Well, I, I think actually, I, that's why I'm kind of stunned by this this, this current move, uh, you know, regarding the, the, the campers and RVs on the streets. I, I was seeing that this, this council was starting to make some really positive moves. Um, one, they're, they're, um, they're uh, helping... Uh, get this shelter going uh this new shelter a 42 bed shelter um but they're also uh they're also um they're they're working on getting uh housing supportive housing in you know but it but it's it's just a start i mean i think it's under 100 units i think it's like um it's 80 units maybe 90 units of 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 uh, supportive housing coming in and uh um it's it's not enough and so, so we've, we, but we, I, I was seeing that. Wow, this this council is making some positive steps, making some decisions. Things are happening that are quite positive. And then this, I just don't understand the timing on this. We're we're working towards a, a great solution, which is getting some supportive housing in. Then maybe work on some transitional housing, and then you know market housing for those that are you know doing well in the transitional. Th- those are all really great things that it kind of I saw starting to take steps in right. that direction. But then to to it's just really poor timing to take an option away uh, from people that are really, really struggling. There's, I, I mean, I, I, I like I, this isn't a huge issue, but I, I mean, I, I know of one person that, that accessed our resources that was living in her camper, um, and uh, she was doing it because she couldn't afford uh, any of the housing, um, but she could afford to to have this camper and insure it and uh, park it and move it around and. Uh, and sleep in it, um, you know, and, and her environmental impact um, would not have been great. I mean, she, she would not have been, sorry, a, a huge impact. Right. She was, uh, she was um, dumping all of her, her sewage um, and, and properly, uh, and, uh, and, you know, her, her trash was going into bins. She was not leaving garbage everywhere. So, Mike, the, uh, what, what would be your yeah. message then to uh, the city of Surrey on this? Like, what would you like to see them deal with? Well, I, I think first of all, uh, we need we need to continue down this path of finding finding supportive housing and housing options for people that are struggling that don't have homes in Surrey. Um, that's that's a great step, I think, uh, something to really focus on, uh, and and not take options away for people to be creative about where they live now. Um, it's it's temporary, you know. Uh, when when housing comes in, you know, if if the city can get kind of maintain that momentum if the housing comes in then people will gladly move out of their campers and trailers and wherever um to to be in a a better housing situation i i uh you know i I think one of the things that came up earlier on this was let's put this bylaw in place so it um pushes people to um move into housing well it's it's absolutely uh, i mean that doesn't make any sense uh, when there is no housing. Um, and, and I would assume that people are staying in their campers because the housing was available, but they just chose not to go in it. Right. And uh, that's just not accurate All right, in well, my experience. All right, Mike. Thank, listen, thank you very much for finding a couple of minutes to talk to us. We appreciate that. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank that you. is Mike Musgrove. He's the executive director of the Surrey Urban Mission in the Wally area of Surrey. You know what's been a hot topic for us today, and actually not just today, but the last four or five years, housing. 
homes, affordability. And we all know that is a huge problem in our region and in our province. I mean, just those issues that we were talking about in Surrey, people living in their RVs. Well, affordability is a huge issue in Surrey. Availability is a big issue. We've got people being squeezed by, you know, rental vacancy rates, which are pretty much at 0% for so many cities. So how do we plan to deal with this? Well, interestingly enough, uh, the region of Metro Vancouver has released a 10-year housing plan. So we thought, well, that's fortuitous. Maybe we should talk about that. What's in this plan? What does it mean for you? Joining us now to discuss this is Sav Dhaliwal, the chair of the Board of Metro Vancouver. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Simi. Now tell me, what does this entail? Like, What does this 10-year housing plan look like? Well, it's a, it's a new plan that we have just uh, released, as you noticed. Uh, it consists of approximately $190 million over 10 years investment. It's pretty modest, uh, obviously, but, but nonetheless, we believe it, uh, it will help quite a bit uh, because at the end of it, we should have additional uh, 1,350 units in the, in the metro region. They would be affordable units. Um, our uh, business model, well, not a business model, in, in a program for housing is that, say, maybe we provide uh, about 30% of, of all of our stock is what we call is rented at a rent geared to income basis, which means generally that the renters, um, renters pay, rent, a renter pays no more than about 30% of their income. Right. Uh, and the rest, 70%, generally are below market, anywhere from 10 to 20% below market. And, and so that helps us cross-subsidize our housing portfolio. Uh, we have about uh, 9,000 people currently living in, in metro housing, which um, uh, are 40, about 40 complex, 49 complex around uh, metro. Uh, with the largest, well, second largest housing um, providing agency in British Columbia next to BC Housing. Right, 1,300 so, new units. And so is this kind of like how a co-op works then when you tie the rent to someone's income? Yes, it, it's not not a co-op isn't the right word for it, but the, uh, these are actually renters like they would be normally renters, but except what we do, we make sure that in every complex or wherever possible, up to 30% of our renters are paying no more than 30% of their gross income. Right, you must have a waiting list for this, though. Oh, there is always a waiting list. We are always trying to make do and, and trying to, as, as the situation happens, uh, trying to work with people, Simi. Um, this, this was something that uh, Metro took on voluntarily uh, in the 80s. Obviously, this wasn't initially part of our core services, but we have uh, been trying to support local um, population providing affordable housing. It has become a lot more acute over the last few years, but previously it was working reasonably well. Now we have a whole lot of pressure coming from all local governments, all communities, right, from Metro, as you said, uh, and you're opening... Uh, the uh, of the um, of, of the session that we have housing problem all over the place. So, so Metro a few years ago, um, about I think it was 2016 or 17, introduced one dollar per household to support this um, this uh, for housing, and and this year we had another four dollars. So it's approximately it costs us about five dollars per household 
to provide housing for about 9,000 right. um, uh, people, which, which is mostly families, Simi, right. you know, families, seniors, people with disabilities, that's it, and all that. These are the people who are in housing need most of all. So we're trying to, now, what we're going to do, uh, Simi, in order to go beyond where we are now, trying to redevelop some of the properties that we own because they were low density before. Mm-hmm. We we can't afford new land and metro anywhere because as we as I said, like we don't have a whole lot of a lot of uh, assets or, or equity. Um because we rely on this just as I said, five dollars per household. It's pretty pretty modest. Uh so so what we're trying to do is redevelop some of those units and then add new stock over 10 years to get another 1350 and that's one part of the housing strategy right. we have. I'm also just curious as well, like how do you decide where this is going to go? You said this is 1,300 new units over the next 10 years. I mean, how do you decide in a region like Metro Vancouver what city or what area should see these new units? Two, two, two ways to do that. First of all, we already have units which are uh, dispersed all through the Metro now. And those are the properties that we own, so we will be redeveloping those, and they will be in right through not just one particular city. Many of the most communities have them, and we will have in each one of those communities wherever they, we have property currently. But the second part to me we, we are trying to do is create now partnership with other local governments, such as you know, let's any any of the local governments who can make perhaps uh, land available. Uh, and we will work with with province of British Columbia and federal government and to get some more funding into housing and then hopefully we'll have um we'll have housing right. almost in every community that we can think of within the twenty three jurisdictions in, in metro. But but so Metro Vancouver is doing this, you said it's something that they took on. Uh isn't it something that the federal government should be doing though? Isn't that their well, responsibility? Yes, I'd like to make a comment about that. You know, um I'm part of the local governments in the over the last uh, 10 years. Local governments have been unfairly targeted about housing problems. It was never part of our responsibility. It still isn't. All we're trying to do is trying to work with what's possible to, you know, save some money here, save some there, beg, borrow, and, 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 you know, we don't steal. But just trying to make sure that we can create some housing. But really... The responsibility is with the provincial government and federal government. In the in the mid nineties, while well, they stopped completely, what they had slowed down was and from the eighties building any more homes and, and affordable homes particularly and no rental property, no co op housing has happened over the thirty years. Right. So well, everybody recognizes that the problem exists. Our citizens, our taxpayers are telling us, well, look, we don't care whose responsibility is, whether it's the federal, provincial. Yes, it is. We understand it. But we know, we see our people, maybe some people we even know, are either homeless now or becoming at the risk of being homeless. So do something about it. Right. So so we've been doing with, with some whatever meager resources we have, trying to... Uh, free up some land uh, and build housing, and then find somebody to run those uh, those these uh, these homes, no uh, prof- nonprofit organizations, and trying to make what we do. But really, you are right. The only way 
homelessness and affordability is going to ever happen in, in, in any city is if met if province of British Columbia and federal government get back in the business of building homes, affordable homes. And and yes, right. local government have a role to play. We will obviously be there with bells on to support them in, in terms of both the providing support in terms of uh, DCC right. development charges or land that's and all that. But but really what we are trying to do is just touching the corners of the yeah. the problem is a lot bigger than any local government can manage. Uh, Vancouver, Surrey, Burnaby, it doesn't really matter what your yeah. resources are. You just don't have enough money to handle, uh, to really support this one. All right. Well, Seth Dollywell, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Simi. That is Mr. Dollywell. He's the chair of Metro Vancouver talking about their 10-year housing plan. They said, look, at we know this is a drop in the bucket. Uh, but they want to do something. They're hoping to invest approximately $190 million over the next 10 years. Their goal to provide over 1,300 new and redeveloped units in the region, of which a portion is tied to income. So you wouldn't pay more than 30% of your income. I can't even begin to imagine what the waiting list is like to get into one of those homes. It must be like winning the lottery. Oh, yes. We are going to talk about everything is awesome. You've seen his books. Well, I think everywhere. His name is Neil Pesfiche. He's a New York Times bestselling author. We're talking like a million copy bestselling author of the Book of Awesome series. Also, The Happiness Equation. Uh, And I asked him just now when he came in and sat down, I said, are you a super positive person? And you said, Neil, you're not. I said, I said, I'm, I'm not an optimist. Everyone thinks I'm super positive and happy all the time. But if I was, I wouldn't have bothered to write a book teaching myself how to cheer up. <laughs> well, his latest book is called You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure and Live an Intentional Life. So how did you come to the idea of I want to write a book about positivity? Well, originally, it was exactly the opposite. My wife told me she didn't want to be married to me anymore at the exact same time that my best friend took his own life. And so I channeled that negativity into writing a daily blog every single day for a 1,000 straight days called 1,000 Awesome Things. The point was to try to cheer myself up. And it's funny because the posts were actually quite sarcastic and acerbic at the beginning. I wrote about fat baseball players, how they give you hope. You know, that you one day can play baseball. And I wrote about wearing warm underwear from out of the dryer and getting That's called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding because at an Indian wedding, there's never enough paneer. I so, hear you on that one. <laughs> I just threw it out there. <laughs> so my point is, like, I just was trying to cheer myself up for time. The blog spiked. It took off. It got popular. That turned into my first book about gratitude called The Book of Awesome that you just mentioned. So that's how I originally got into this stuff. I was trying to figure it out for myself. And did you think at some point, because that just took off, right? Yeah. I mean, there is an airport that I have been in in the last year or so that I haven't seen that book. And were you surprised and going, okay, I guess people need this. I mean, at the time that the blog took off, yeah, we were, it was bad news everywhere. I mean, I guess it kind of always is, you know, people were looking for something positive like me. And I get a lot of comments from people saying, I was going through a divorce or I was going through a depression. I was going through something and it gave me some simple pleasures to cheer themselves up. Was I surprised? Yeah. Cause you can never predict that something will take off no. the way it took off. Uh, but I was so surprised that I didn't change my lifestyle at all. I, I stayed at Walmart where I was working for another eight years after that through five more books and 200 speeches. Cause I was just like, this is just a flash in the pan. 
the whole time I thought so that. So you were still glass half empty about your success that I, you didn't quit your day job. You know, for years I thought, I, I was like everybody, I was like, okay, glass half empty, yes, exactly. And also Indian parents, this is like, you're supposed to be a doctor, I already failed at that, at least have benefits, you know what I mean? At least have something going for you, so you're just like flighting oh, around. I feel like you're flashing to my childhood here. Oh, yes. I mean, exactly. Yeah. We both failed, right? You're you're hosting a radio show, I'm writing a book, what, what are we doing? You know, we should be I'm a surgery right now. I'm not a doctor right or a lawyer, you're right. That's... Exactly, yeah, yeah. Hopefully you're married to an engineer or something. <laughs> Just joking. No, uh, I failed there too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so my point is like, you know, people think the glass half full or half empty. Did you know that there's an amazing study out of Stanford from Sonia Lebemirsky that shows 50% of your happiness is genetic, 10% is circumstantial, and 40% is based on your intentional activities. Meaning, say me, the glass isn't half full or half empty. It is refillable. Oh, clever the way you did that. <laughs> so when you were writing this blog then and going on day after day after day, is there a point where you recognized you were starting to feel good about it? Like you were coming out of your funk. You, it was uplifting you. And do you remember like what were those, what was it about those posts that did that, made that difference for you? Well, here's the thing. I, I, I wrote down every single awesome thing I could think of when I started this thing. And I, I had like 12 total. Remember the blog's called 1000awesomethings.com. So I thought I'm going to run out. I'm going to run out. I'm going to run out. The thing about positivity and journaling and gratitude practice, the way all these things work is when you put a practice in your life, it becomes the gigantic sun that puts a weight in your own mental solar system, meaning that people start texting me suggestions. I start thinking about them more often. Right. I keep a little note in my pocket. I am literally priming my brain for positivity. Our brains naturally want to look at negative. That's why we rubberneck on the highway. So if it bleeds, it leads. We, we want to do that. Yeah. But if we practice creating a practice ourselves of training our brains to look at the positive, we start to see things that way. So that slowly started happening for me. In your latest book, as I said, is called You Are Awesome. You talk about the secrets to this, being awesome, secret number one, a lot of it having to do with your mom's story. And I found that for me, it really uh, meant hope. Is mm. it finding something to hope for yeah. is a huge factor. It exactly is. Because you know what? We all have, we all suffer from something. We all have the same ailment. Did you know it? It's called the end of history illusion. It's based on research from Harvard, Daniel Gilbert and team. And they found, they interviewed 19,000 people. They asked everyone two questions. Hey, how were the last 10 years of your life? And hey, what do you think the next 10 years will look like? Everybody could paint a tempestuous portrait about the past 10 years. Oh, I dated Ricky, then Bob, then Dream, then whatever. I, I got fired. I quit. I got promoted. We moved three times. And what about the next 10 years? Everybody said, I'll be the same as I am now. The problem is we, our brains, think that history ends today, which means when you get fired from your job, when you get broken up with, when you are at the bottom somehow, you think it's over. You think, I'll never find another job. Nobody will ever date me. It's over. But then don't we recognize when good things start to happen that, oh, we were wrong. Like, why can't we put that two and two together? This is interesting because Daniel Gilbert, the researcher who did this, he's the author of Stumbling on Happiness. He said he went through a divorce and he lost a friend. And he thought, oh, I, next year my life's going to stink. And when it didn't stink a year later, he thought, huh, I wonder if everybody makes that same mistake. And it turns out everybody does. Did you know when I was at Walmart, I had a job as an HR person where I actually had to help people get fired. It was a horrible job. I lost a lot of sleep over it. And when, you know what people would say when they get fired? I'll never find another job again. This is the worst thing that ever happened to me. What am I going to do now? Guess what, Simmy? I would sometimes bump into those people five or ten years later, and guess what they'd always say to me? I know. I know this. What? 
getting fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. You're right. They always say that. It was the best thing that ever happened <laughs> no, to me. No, I know, because that happened to me. <laughs> and, and see what I'm saying? We always mistake. Why did I write this book, You Are Awesome, all about resilience? Because we all make that same mistake. We make that mistake. And you know what? They say, oh, I started that ukulele importing company I thought about. I went to Peru to visit my family. I got to spend time with my daughter after her miscarriage. It turned into a great thing later. Our brains yeah. suck at predicting that. But do you ever get irritating to be around? Because, you know, I'm just thinking about your you friends and your family. <laughs> if they're having sometimes people, you just want to have a down day. You're like, listen, just let me wallow in this for a couple of minutes. And are you the person who's there going, no, we're going to go do this. Or we're going to do this. And it's going to be great. You've asked me this a few times, which I think it means there's something going on here. I, I, I don't think I'm like that. But you'd have to ask my wife, Leslie. Yes, I got remarried. Yes, I've written this book now for my unborn children or for my children. Aww. Yeah, because I want them to have resilience. We all have thin skin. We all we too many gold stars, too many participation ribbons. Now everyone's too coddled. That's so cute. Yes. No. So now we got to build resilience. It's a big muscle. I ask you just because we have a producer here, Dwayne Bishop, who is our technical <laughs> producer. The guy who played the music. Yeah, the guy who played right for you. Uh -huh, Everything uh -huh. is awesome. He is the most relentlessly positive person that any of us have ever mm. met in our entire lives. And he's been here now for like a year and a half or so. And we're always wondering, like, what's it going to take for him to bad to have a bad day? He's never had I, a bad day. I just day. turned around and he's got like he's a full face smile. Yeah. He's never had a bad day. So I wonder, mm -hmm. are there just some people who are more inclined to be happier than others? Well, remember I said 50% of it's genetic, 10% circumstantial. My question is, what's Dwayne filling his 40% with? Is this guy exercising? Good thoughts. Is this guy exercising? Is he reading books? I see is him he eating journaling? junk food every day. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's just genetic. We're I doing think a deep analysis on Dwayne right now. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. If you have two kids, you might think one of them's happier than the other. That's fine. People like me... That's not the case. I have to work at it. Why do I write these books? Because I'm trying to figure the answers out for myself. I wrote a book on resilience. You know why? Because I have thin skin. I get two likes on a photo on Instagram. I think I got no friends. I think that. I'm <laughs> a successful 40-year-old man, and I am down on myself. I think I'm a loser. Well, why do you put yourself through? That's the other question. I thought, why put yourself through that, right? If you're like, if it make you feel down to get two people not liking your picture or liking your picture... Why I can't we... control it. All I can do is teach myself. When I lean on research like the end of history revolution, when I write books like my mom's story, add a dot, dot, dot. That's the first chapter of You Are Awesome. I yeah. then coagulate, cogitate, and congeal these thoughts together so that they form Love a stronger that. mentality for myself. I write the books for myself. The Book of Awesome is not written because I feel awesome. It's written because I didn't and I wanted to. Well, guess what? People can come feel more awesome, right, by listening to you? Yes, I know. See how I set that up there? Uh, Neil's going to be signing copies of his new book called You Are Awesome. It's tonight at the Indigo on Robson. Doors open at 6.30. Signing begins at 7. Tickets are available for this. So if you want to go, check it out. It's at the Indigo on Robson. Neil, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Neil's book is called You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. Oh, more to come tonight. Don't forget at the Indigo on Robson.